Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Conversations on Dance is proud to have Yumiko as a continued partner in 2021. Yumiko is a company inspired by beauty and standards. As a leader in the dancewear industry, they take great pride in their impact as a socially and environmentally conscious brand. And today we have big news. In honor of springtime's arrival, Yumiko is offering a special in-store discount to our New York City listeners. Show that you are subscribed to Conversations on Dance at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your in-store purchase. For store hours, visit yumiko.com and be sure to follow along on Instagram at Yumiko to participate in their weekly giveaways and to stay updated on all things 2021. The Vail Dance Festival is returning to live performances, and we will be there to cover all the action. From July 30th through August 9th, 2021, we will be conducting live podcast events with incredible festival artists, getting an inside look at their careers and the works that they will be a part of during the festival. If you will be in Vail, we hope that you will join us for these events. Tickets are available now at veildance.org. If you will not be there in person, be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Dance through your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media so you don't miss a moment from Vale. We are off this week as we work to prepare for our live events at the Vale Dance Festival later this month. So we are taking this opportunity to re-release an old episode. As we continue to highlight great summer dance reads, enjoy this chat with former American Ballet Theater dancer and author Michael Langlois from May 2019. Fortunately, as you will be able to tell, our technology and sound quality has in fact improved over the past two years. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. This week on Conversations on Dance, we are joined by Michael Langlois. Michael began studying ballet at the age of 10, and once he became more serious with his training, attended the North Carolina School of the Arts and the School of American Ballet in New York. He was offered a job at American Ballet Theater by Mikhail Baryshnikov the year he took over the company. In his 16 years as a professional dancer, he went on to dance with Feld Ballet and Ballet du Nord. In 2018, he wrote a memoir, B+, Dancing for Mikhail Baryshnikov and American Ballet Theater, where he gives an intimate look at the upper echelons of the dance world. In our conversation with Michael, we talk about his training at SAB, being hired into Baryshnikov's ABT, the unique challenges of being in the court of ballet, and he talks openly and honestly about struggling with an eating disorder. Well, thank you for joining us today, Michael. We're so glad that we could get you on. Um, Rebecca is in Florida, but you Hi. and I are here together in New York on a beautiful <laughs> spring day. Oh, good. We wish you were with us. Uh, I always wish I was with you guys. But thanks to the power of Skype, <laughs> we almost are. Um, okay, so let's let's um, just start with our usual, start at the beginning. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got your start in dance. Uh, I started... I was an athlete as a kid. Um, very at a very young age, I started competitive swimming and diving, and that was literally I was six or seven. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I just I loved all kinds of athletic things. Around the age of ten, I decided I was going to play organized football, and uh, there were there was a news story <clears throat> highlighting the fact that there were some professional football players who were taking ballet classes. So I saw this news story and I said to my mom, because I was very ambitious, I was like, well, if it's good enough for them, maybe I should take some ballet classes. Mm-hmm. So she went out and found, this is in Winston-Salem in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. She found me a teacher, a man who had two boys who were also football players uh-huh. as students. So it was just, the, we started just the three of us uh, once a week. It wasn't, you know, that serious, but um, that was, that was the beginning mm-hmm. and that that was only about that lasted a year in North Carolina. And my parents, my dad was transferred around the country a lot. So we moved up to Massachusetts and I continued in a local school situation with a, a very eccentric woman from Latvia mm-hmm. named Ina Janssens. Um, and so she was quite a character. Like she must've weighed 80 pounds and she never cut her hair in her whole life. And she wrapped her hair around her head. Like a, like it was like, like a tiara mm-hmm. and she smoked, uh, from a long cigarette holder and she never demonstrated the steps. She loved to sit in a chair and she would make the advanced girls demonstrate the Uh steps to all the rest of us. Hmm. It was so funny. Um, anyway, that lasted a couple (laughs) more years. And then I ended up going to some pretty serious teachers in Boston. Mm -hmm. One of whom was David Shields, who had been a soloist of the Royal Ballet. Mm -hmm. And he and his wife had a school in Boston in those days. This is in the early seventies. And you know, they, that was when my training got serious and they were saying to me at around the age of 12, 13, they said, if you really want to dance, you cannot keep, you can't, you have to come more than a couple times a week. And mm-hmm. you know, you, you probably can't play football anymore or do anything else. How old were you at that point when, um, when you, when they were saying you need to come more frequently? 13, 12, 13. 13. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then I just, you know, I was in there, Every day, I was taking the bus from Andover by myself. I was 13. People probably were aghast, I'm sure. My (laughs) my parents' friends were probably like, what are you doing with that boy Mm. going into Boston by himself? Um, But I loved it. I totally, I don't know. I just, the big city was so appealing to me. And uh, I was having a very difficult time in public school because of my interest in ballet. I, I wrote about this in my book. Um, I was teased quite a bit and I really was miserable in public school. Um, so going to Boston was kind of a refuge for me. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, a, a couple of years later, when I was 15, my parents moved back to, to North Carolina. We moved to Greensboro and I had to kind of cobble together a ballet schedule there. I was going to the North Carolina, uh, University of North Carolina, Greensboro a couple of days a week. And then I reconnected with my original teacher in Winston-Salem. So I was commuting there three days a week. Mm-hmm. And then the following year, uh, I went to the North Carolina School of the Arts. I, had, I went to the summer program there and fell in love with it. And then I, when I was 16, I went to the school full time. Mm-hmm. Who was heading the school at that point? Was, um, Robert Lindgren mm-hmm. was the head of the school. And there were some amazing teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, Duncan Noble, Yula Pandi, uh, Svea Ekloff, and Michelle Ron. Uh Mimi Paul was my teacher every morning. Um, most of your listeners will know who she is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it was it was fabulous. I, it was like, I wished I had gone there earlier in my life. Mm-hmm. I It was so wonderful uh, to be around other dancers and other boys. Because, you know, throughout my training, I mean, after that initial start with those two boys, I don't think I had a... They, well, there were some men in class in mm-hmm. Boston. But I was never around any boys my own age. Um, so that was really refreshing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Rebecca. Um, no, I was just wondering since you kind of moved around a lot and you didn't, you had all these different trainings, was it hard for you to adjust when you got to North Carolina school of the arts and start, you know, with one, you know, continuity of training, you had one style working in that. Was that like a challenge for you to kind of piece your training together to create one cohesive style? Um, you know what? It's funny. I don't think I've ever thought about that. Uh, I'm not sure I even remember what types of, I mean, obviously at David Shields studio, we were probably doing RAD, mm-hmm. uh, but I cannot for the life of me remember the classes or the technique that uh, technically I was really, I think I took a lot of shortcuts. And when I got to school of the arts and I was in Mimi's class, she, 
you know, here I was, I had a tremendous amount of turnout. I'm, I was very flexible in my hips, so I could make all the positions at the bar look mm. perfect. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really have the strength. You know, when I got into the center, I, I struggled a lot. Um, I didn't know where my legs were in the air all the time because um, I stretched, like overstretched. Mm. And, you know, honestly, I don't remember. I mean, I don't barely remember Mimi's classes. I just remember her looking at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you need to turn in more and you need to get stronger. And she was absolutely right. But I was such a stubborn little brat. (laughs) I, I just, you know, I had to, I felt like I had to fit my body to make these lovely positions. And I, you know, as I wrote in the, I, I mean, I just couldn't take a step back. I needed, and that, that took me years to figure out actually. Um, so to answer your long winded answer to your question about the, (laughs) the continuity of the training. I don't, I don't think I really thought about it actually. Right. Well, then you, you know, ended up continuing your, your training at the school of American ballet. So how did that come about? Um, well, Mimi was very good friends with Suzanne and Peter. And during, during that year that I was at the school of the arts, I was already, I was about to finish high school. I, I was a year ahead of of everyone in school. Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of those like, you know, advanced placement kids. And so I was about to graduate and I wanted to go to New York. Um, I wasn't going to spend another year at school of the arts. So I came up to New York to audition for ballet theater school. They had a school then mm-hmm. the old school and uh, to audition for SAB. Um, and after, after that spring trip, I went back to school of the arts and Suzanne and Peter came down to look for dancers mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Mimi, Peter watched me in class and he basically just said, you know, you need to come to SAB. Mm -hmm. And so I had a choice to make between the two schools. And I think having visited the two schools once I was in New York, I just felt like SAB was an altogether more uh, polished. Mm -hmm. I mean, you probably don't remember the old studios, the Ballet Theater Studios, but they were ramshackle, to Uh say the least. They were super cool, but. It was it was in an old building on 61st between Central Park West and Broadway on the very top floor. They didn't have air conditioning in the summer. It was like 100 degrees oh. in there. <laughs> they had these weird uh, second floor walkways where you could look down in these little plastic bubbles into the studios. Uh-huh. Hmm. I think they had about they probably had about eight studios, but it was just whatever. It it was dirty and raggedy and and I just was like, well, and also SAB was offering living stipends mm. in those days. I don't know if they still do. But I was thinking that I might end up at the school in the fall and I wanted to get a living stipend because mm. I I don't know. I I just I was very concerned about my dad paying for me to sure. to live and all this stuff. So mm. anyway, another long-winded answer to your question about SAP. <laughs> no, we so love it. I, I went to the summer program basically. And then they offered me, a, they offered me the chance to come back in the fall, which mm-hmm. I accepted. And so I moved to New York in when I was 17. Mm-hmm. Um, so who were your primary teachers at SAB at that point? Stanley, Richard Rapp and Kremrevsky were my teacher. And on Friday, Suki Shore. And occasionally Danilova would teach, uh, she would teach character class and usually in the summer programs, I seem to recall. Mm-hmm. Stanley would teach variations class in the summer, but, but it was really, you know, Stanley rap and crammy. Mm-hmm. Were you aware at that point that these were just like teaching legends or you're just like a kid no. going into class? Like, well, I think I knew Stanley was a legend because mm-hmm. of the people that were coming to class. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as the fall program started, I mean, everybody that was in City Ballet in those days was in class. I mean, most of the men. So Peter was in class. Peter Martins was in class every day, virtually every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we would see all these other dancers walk in. You know, every famous male dancer from Europe who was in New York to perform would come. Nereev would come. Uh, Misha would come. All these dancers from Ballet Theater, when they had time, would come. So I think I was aware mm-hmm. of Stanley's reputation. Right. While we're on the topic of Stanley, I want to skip forward a little bit in your career for a second. Um, We were reading the Ballet Review article that you wrote about your first day at ABT, and you talk a lot about Stanley teaching that first class. Can you tell us a little bit about your impressions of him and what it was like being his student and a little bit about his class? Yeah. Um, Okay. (laughs) Interesting. Um, Well, 
I mean, I liked Stanley. I, I think here's the thing. I think that he wasn't the right teacher for me at that point in my life as a mm-hmm. dancer. Because I, as I said earlier about my technique, I had taken all these shortcuts and I really needed to go back and do some retraining. Mm-hmm. And I think Stanley's class, the advanced men's class, wasn't really there to teach technique. It was there to teach you a philosophy or an approach to, to the steps. And so it was frust- Stanley was a frustrating teacher for me, uh, particularly because I, you know, I wanted some answer. I wanted to know how things worked. Mm-hmm. Nobody was like, he wasn't really, he didn't explain how things worked. He would Mm -hmm. just give you little metaphors about Mm -hmm. the steps. Um, So anyway. I have a friend that um, said this about Stanley that I thought was pretty, seems accurate based on what the way people talked about Stanley is that Balanchine could famously just take anything, you know, off the street and be like, okay, I'll make something out of this. Like, you know, he could make, anything good stanley could make something good really really good that he would take like the uber talented and then take them to the next level Hmm. yeah i think that's i think that's true yeah i mean stanley worked you know his class was was frustrating because he would always come in late um the bar was not difficult um you did a lot of weird little tondu combinations and then in the center, there was a break. And then we did a lot of pirouettes, a lot of different pirouette combinations. It was it was not always we would not always get to Grand Allegro in his class. Mm-hmm. Um, the class really it was about an hour and 15 minutes, to be honest with you. And I think a lot of the professional dancers enjoyed it because it was a, it was a very simple, easy kind of warm up class. You weren't going to hurt so yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like a company class, you know, where they're not, you're not expected to challenge the dancers too much. Um, so yeah. And Stanley would like pick, you know, he would do these, you know, kind of typical little Bourneville combinations, little petit allegro in the center with, you know, jetés and things. And he would, he loved to work on timing. Um, I think that was one of the, one of his, uh, focuses in class. And because he had Lynn Stanford as his pianist, the whole issue of musicality and timing was a big part of the class. Mm-hmm. You, you probably are too young to have taken class with Lynn. I'm sure you were. Anyway, he was probably the most brilliant ballet pianist. I mean, certainly the most brilliant ballet pianist I've ever encountered. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, Stanley's class was about that. It was about musicality, uh, phrasing, and uh, a philosophy behind the steps and a way of thinking about the steps. So, you know... He used to, I mean, I, he used to say, you know, he always had these weird phrases about pirouettes, you know, like, you see, boys, I turn, but I don't turn. Or, you know, I just go front. I, I don't turn, boys. I just go front. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean, go front? I'm not really <laughs> sure what that is. But, but you know, you could, you know, you would just try to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so after SAB, you would didn't go into American Ballet Theater straight away. That's right, right, right. I didn't. So you had, you went and you performed the San Francisco Opera. You worked right. in Italy. What drove those decisions? Why, why did you um, experiment outside of what might've been a traditional path mm. to just go right into? Uh, I think, well, I mean, for purely practical reasons, mm-hmm. I mean, Balanchine was alive then and he was coming to the advanced men's class once a year to mm-hmm. pick people for the company. And he didn't seem interested in me. I didn't have any big things to do in workshop. Um, I was basically an understudy. He only came once a year to look. Yeah, balancing. Yeah, yeah. I recall. He Interesting. Came, he might have come twice, but I, I seem to remember him coming pretty much once. Some, uh-huh. Sometime in the spring, but maybe before workshop, huh. he would just come and watch. Um, I'm, I'm sure he was being told who the boys were. Sure, sure. He, he should be concerned with. By Lincoln. <laughs> I Lincoln. I don't know. I, uh-huh. I don't know if how if Lincoln advised him in that regard. Mm-hmm. I I don't think so. I think Balanchine just you know he could make up his own mind. I'm sure mm-hmm. Stanley, you know Stanley right, would right. talk to him sure, about sure. boys in mm-hmm. that class. Um, so I think I sort of figured out that maybe I wasn't going to be in city ballet, and I I think around that time I think I might have done one or two auditions for ballet theater. Mm-hmm. And that was when Lucia was still the director. And this 
this woman, Margot Sappington, who had been at the Joffrey, just happened to come and she was looking for a dancer to dance this leading role in Death in Venice in San Francisco at the opera. And she asked a few boys to come to the audition. I was one of them. And I ended up getting the part. And I just I just thought, OK, well, this is, you know, this is great. I'm going to get paid to dance and dye my hair blonde and <laughs> go to San Francisco. <laughs> it, was ter- it was terrifying, frightening. Um. And so I had that job, and then Margot subsequently got another gig in Italy, and she asked me to come to Italy. So that's how those two jobs ended up happening, actually. Mm-hmm. And after this job in Italy, which was like a six-month contract in Reggio Emilia, uh, I really had no, I had no plans for the future. Mm-hmm. I just wanted, I needed to get a job somewhere. Right. And I came back to New York and was taking. I had left the School of American Ballet. I was taking with Melissa Hayden. And because I knew Dick Tanner um, mm-hmm. from SAB, he they were Misha was about to take over Ballet Theater, and they were looking for boys to come to this audition, and they asked me to come, mm-hmm. and that's how I ended up at that audition, ended up getting a contract with Ballet Theater. Were you ever worried to join? I mean, it's, I know it's American Ballet Theater, but that's kind of a time of turmoil in a way for a company when a new director is coming in. Was that ever a concern for you, or a thought, or you were just like really excited to embark on this new journey with a new director? Yeah. No, I wasn't concerned to be honest. I mean, I don't, I was just, I was, I mean, (laughs) young and ready. I think I actually, I developed a real, uh, fondness for ballet theater before I got in the company. Um, you know, like many SAB students we were going to the performances all the time Mm -hmm. and I was accustomed to seeing all those dancers in class a lot. And I wasn't so familiar with ballet theater. So when I got to go to see ballet theater at the Met, it was just this, whole other world that I really wasn't familiar with. And it just seemed so, it was on a whole different level of grandiosity and, you know, the dancers looked different, they moved differently. And I, and I'd like the repertoire. I just thought, Oh, this is really interesting what they're doing. And so it, it really was a dream of mine to be in ballet theater. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I had been trying with Lucia and having no success. Um, so I was thrilled. I, it was like the happiest day of my life when oh. I got that contract, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yes. So I didn't think about the upheaval at Ballet Theater. I'm sure mm-hmm. the dancers who had been there under Lucia thought about it. Mm-hmm. But don't forget, they'd been working with Misha. He'd been dancing right, right. in Ballet Theater. So, sure. so they were familiar with him. Right. It feels like that's a safer bet in a transition, at least. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Brishnikov is obviously, he is arguably the most famous ballet dancer of all time. Yeah. And you're this teenager um that's about to embark on your whole career did you find it intimidating or was it motivating that you were working for this sort of legendary figure um it was more intimidating really intimidating Mm -hmm. i think um i mean you know i was at sab when misha was in city ballet so he was Mm -hmm. coming to stanley williams class all the time so you know, I was familiar with him and I'd seen him perform and, but, you know, of course he was this icon and, um, yeah, I was very nervous working around him. Also keep in mind that when you're, when you get a contract ballet theater in those days, you were basically on probation. So your whole first year, you were so hyper aware of the fact that, uh, you know, you could just, they could just they drop could fire you. you. Yeah. They could drop That's you the next contract. year easily. Oof. You had no job security whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, I really, really struggled. I struggled in Jürgen Schneider's class. He was the man who was teaching company class. And we had men's class separate from the women every day. And Misha was in class every day. And I just felt like I was under a microscope all the time. And I was really having a hard time. Did Misha ever teach or he just... He would only teach on occasion. Mm -hmm. Very rare. He didn't like teaching. But he would coach the ballets or no? Not too much. (laughs) No, not really. Not in... Mm -hmm. I think in the in the those well that's not true actually the first rehearsal that we had was for he was staging a new version of Raimonda and he was mm-hmm. teaching the mazurka mm-hmm. to us I was like okay you know and he was like he was like screaming at us and I was like oh my god this guy's so angry <laughs> <laughs> so was that, was that kind of did he have a more combative like coaching style or was that just that day or what uh, you... yeah yeah I don't know I mean <laughs> he could be in a good mood certainly I mean mm-hmm. yeah but I mean he was. I, to bear in mind, he was under a lot of pressure. I mean, mm-hmm. he'd never directed a company before. He was learning as he was going along. He was only 32. Wow. I mean, he was wow. young. 
Yeah, imagine 32 dr- taking over the That's directorship me. of ABT. Do they want to give me ABT? Yeah. <laughs> 32 as well. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's – and they're – okay. And he's also the most famous dancer and he's doing all these – He's doing all you the know, He's still too. doing a full repertoire yeah, of yeah. ballets on, on top of teaching and coaching and trying to do all this stuff. So mm. I think he was really uh, pulled in a lot of different directions. Um, mm. So his moods, I think, you know, could shift – from one day to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still, I mean, I, I really respected him. I mean, I had the utmost respect for him. Mm-hmm. You know, if he was teaching us something, I really paid attention and I tried my hardest to do what he wanted. And yeah, I just, I, I thought he was amazing, amazing person, yeah. amazing dancer, obviously. So you've written a memoir called B plus dancing from Mikhail Bershnikov, um, where you, kind of outline what it was like dancing the company, but also you talk about things that were difficult and things that were challenging for you as a professional dancer. Was it hard for you to share these vulnerable moments? And why did you feel like it was important to get out there and really talk about the truth and the hardship that is involved with a professional ballet career? Uh, because I don't think enough people have really spoken about it. Yeah. Um, and certainly I don't think a lot of court about not a lot of male court of ballet dancers really talk about the, the difficulties of working in a big company like ballet theater or city ballet. And, you You're know, the only one I can think of. Yeah. I'm maybe I am not. the only one. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know what the other boys were going through. Um, you know, everybody has a different expectation and a level of ambition. You know, I can't imagine Ballet Theater was such a different company then than it is now. And uh, there was a lot more for the Court of Ballet men to do in those days, in the 80s. I think mm-hmm. now there's far less. I mean, if you look at their repertoire, it's just one week of full lengths after another, except I think at City Center where they do they do pretty much rep programs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, don't, I just wanted to be honest about my experience. I didn't want to sugarcoat things or say, you know, mm-hmm. it was – this beautiful, you know, heart, heart rending experience, you know, on, on and on and on. I mean, of course we all understand you guys understand as well as anyone. It's like you have moments of highs and lows in a company. Mm-hmm. You can be, you can be as happy as a clam one minute and just, you know, want to slit your wrist the next. Yeah. Seriously. And that it's can true. happen within one combination. <laughs> within a combination. So, uh, oh, it's a mixed bag. I hope I, I didn't want to come off as making it, making my experience seem too negative but no um, i i think that you something that it seems like a hallmark of your writing is that you do a really good job of expressing that your love and um devotion to the art form mm. while also putting shining some light on yeah. these other things yeah. yeah and i think it would have been really helpful to have your writing around when i was growing up because i mm-hmm. i think the only book that actually um, covered any of this, and you're right, it's a mm. woman, is Tony Bentley's yeah. Winter Season. Yeah. But she, too, would, had that sort of struggle back and forth of, like, she it's not trashing the art at all. Mm-hmm. She loved it. Right. But it can be so difficult for people. And most of what we are consuming when you're young is these glamorized but autobiographies of like, oh, it's so great that mm-hmm. Mr. B picked me out when I was 15 and then made me a star. Yeah. So well, I, it's great to have this other view. Yeah. yeah. And I think too, like even this ballet review article that we were reading that you wrote, I'm working with a student that's working on trying to get into her professional career and having like a time right now where it's like, oh, I'm in the back of rehearsals. What does that mean? That's never something that you like envision when you start your professional career, you know, and I sent it to her and it's, it's helpful to know, like, this is how it goes sometimes, you know, that it's not all and like for those kids, for example, they see what's on Instagram, which is like everybody living their most glamorous ballet life. And it's not that way, you know, and like you said, there's highs and lows and everything. And so it's really important for, you know, especially people who are just starting their career to know that they're not alone. Yeah. So one of the vulnerabilities that you talk about that I think is really important is um, struggle with disordered eating and poor body image and that sort of thing, which Mm -hmm. again, um, you know, it is brought up and it's, it certainly isn't dealt with enough, even in women, but I don't think I've ever heard a man talking about it, but mm. I know certainly from my personal experience that boys and men are affected as well. So, um, again, like what was, what was your experience with that and why is it so 
swept under the rug for men versus women, do you think? Like, why don't we hear more about it? You know, okay, for mm-hmm. instance, take, take for instance, um, yeah. Sugar Plum Gate. When Alistair McCauley <laughs> yeah. said that about right. Jennifer Ringer, nobody even brought up Jared at all. Right. But he said that Jared was no. he, sampling half the sweets, you know, <laughs> you know, and that's so. Yeah, yeah. Um, What's funny, Jacques Soto talked about being heavy in his book a little mm. bit. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, well, you know, this is a whole podcast in and of itself, I guess, the mm. whole issue of eating disorders with men. I think. I think it's just a secret all the way around. Mm. I mean, you know, I didn't even know my girlfriend was bulimic. I mean, I suspected she was. Mm. But also, I think the thing that I try to point out in my book is that I don't think I was willing to admit to myself what I was doing. Mm. I thought I was okay. It's only in hindsight that I was thinking, you know, this really wasn't normal. You weren't like the obsession with food and not eating and starving yourself. I mean, I was like... I don't know why I thought that was just normal. normal. I don't know. I just thought it was normal. I didn't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were moments during that period when, uh, I don't know, it was just, it was all I thought about, mm-hmm. you know, it was a, re- a real distraction. And yeah. I, I wanted to write about it cause I wanted, I want dancers to be more open. I, I want them to be on, I want them to be more honest with themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that's the whole goal here is, I think you're, you can really fool yourself in the ballet world. You know, you're, you, so much is going on in your brain and you're standing there in front of the mirror all day long looking at yourself and you're making all these little judgments from one second to the next. And, uh, you're not even necessarily aware of your thinking, like what your thinking is about yourself, you know, and oftentimes it's really, really negative. Um, and you have to, I think, I think you have to really be cautious about those kind of thinking patterns mm-hmm. because they they destroy your your joy for the work mm-hmm. and and have a real negative impact on your career, I think. Um, but, you know, nobody talks about it. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're doing better now than when you were dancing? Well, I don't know. I mean, I can't... You'd have to talk to every dancer individually. Mm-hmm. I, I sent my book out to... I picked... Most of the major dance companies in this country, even, you know, sort of middling companies. I sent one copy of my book to a boy and a girl in the Court of Ballet mm-hmm. in each of those companies. And I got some feedback from a couple girls. One girl said, it's funny, the dance world hasn't changed. She said, a lot of the things that you talk about and bring up are still the same. She said, I still have a lot of those same feelings. Um, I don't know. I mean, if... I don't think you can really look at dancers and say yes or no, this person has an eating disorder or they have some serious psychological issues. It's such a fine line. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how many of your listeners, I mean, if you watch that Gelsey uh, recording at Wolf Trap with Misha doing theme and variation, and she, I grew up on that. Yeah. That mm-hmm. that, she put in that little at end, that blurb yeah. at the end about anorexia. And I was like, Oh my God. You know, I don't think if she had put that in there, people necessarily would have looked at her and thought, oh, yeah, she's anorexic mm-hmm. because she was always extremely thin. Mm-hmm. But it's like, how do you how do you judge it? You know, that's interesting because we have I can think of two friends of mine that are very thin, but very healthy mentally right. and, yeah. you know, physically and Photos of them got posted, I think was a dancer point or some, some publication posted a photo in which they look really thin. And then the comments skewer them. Oof, yeah. And they, they said, you know, this is irresponsible of the magazine to be posting a photo of this, uh, promoting this. Uh, and these, the dancers should be ashamed of themselves, too, and that sort of thing. Uh, so it's interesting. You're right. Like yeah. the pendulum swings both ways. Like, yeah. Sometimes people are okay and then, you know, just have, you know, the workload we do too can, can affect, um, yeah, your weight and the way you metabolize things. But, yeah, but so that's why it's even more difficult to get a handle on. Um, but I think the issue really also is like where, like before you make that choice to stop eating mm-hmm. or to start throwing up or whatever it is, I think there's a lot of, you know, there are things that lead up to that, that I think if dancers just were given more information mm-hmm. and people talk to them more, like, you know, this is not an answer to your frustrations as a dancer. If you're frustrated in a company, 
stopping eating or going down this path is not going to get you anything. Um, you know, you need to just, I don't know. It's the thing that makes it hard, Rebecca, I think is that everyone is so young. Mm-hmm. And when you're 20 years old, you don't know yourself that well, you know, I mean, you, you're just you're still trying to figure out who you are as a dancer, as a person. So I think your ability to be introspective or self-reflective is diff- is challenge. It's challenging. Right. Do you feel like when you started getting thinner that you got positive reinforcement from that? And that was something that maybe to that point, because you ha- hadn't been maybe happy in the company that mm-hmm. kind of like fueled it. Well, I thought I looked better. So that, that right. was the first step. Sure, sure. I was like, oh, I look really good. Like this. <laughs> I was fainting, but I look great. Ah. <laughs> um, not much. No, I mean, there's that one little instance in the book where David Richardson said, you know, that he thought I looked great, you know, after I came back from Italy and I hadn't eaten like all summer. <laughs> but no, nobody else says much to you. I mean, and you've been, you know, you guys know what it's like. How many, how many times do you go up to a fellow dancer in company class or when you're just sitting in the dressing room and talk about their weight? I mean, if somebody's getting a little chunky, you're not you know, gonna... you're not going to say it. <laughs> right, like, right. If they're getting a little thin, you're like, you notice it, but it's not like people bring it up. Mm-hmm. Right. But people should bring it up. They like, right. should be like, are you okay? Like, like, are you, are you eating? Like, mm-hmm. what's going on? Right. See, that's the thing. It's just shrouded in so much secrecy. You know, yeah. No one's talking about it. No one's even like even people that they both know they probably have the same problems. Don't talk about it. Yeah. You know, no, nobody talks about it. So yeah. how did you ultimately recover from that and recover from your body image issues? Or have uh, you? No, uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I think I still like any dancer have body issues. Yeah, um, totally. But at least I feel like I. I listened to my body in ways that I didn't when I was an anorexic. I mean, when you're anorexic, you, you basically ignore all the signals that your body's giving you. So I think the one thing I tried to do as I got older, I, what it went, it went hand in glove with the fact that I got out of that. Like I stopped dancing right? Uh, or, or I was dancing less and I was not in a ballet company more. I started doing more modern work when I was in my thirties and the, yeah, the further away I got from the the drive and the ambition um, and being in that kind of world of a big company like Ballet Theater. Well, first of all, I realized at some point I did realize how unhappy I was and I knew I needed to make some changes. So I mm-hmm. started, you know, around the time I was in my 30s, I was like, I need to go to therapy. I am so miserable. I need to figure out how to be happy. I don't want to go on like this. Um, so all of that happened kind of at the same time I was getting older and more mature. I wasn't dancing as much. Uh, but it took, it took years. I mean, it just went on. It was a slow, slow process, um, of learning how to, you know, be kind to yourself. And yeah, Hmm. I mean, I don't know. Have I completely rid myself of that mindset and thinking? Probably not. You can't really. Yeah. Anyone. No, I, I still focus quite a bit in my life now. I mean, not so much in my, I don't know, uh, my physical body is a big part of who I am. I think it's always a part of who a dancer is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't starve myself. Like right now, I mean, at this point I'm 58. If I'm hungry, I eat something. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't go like, oh, I'm going to skip lunch today because, you know, I need to lose three pounds. Mm-hmm. thankfully i don't do that anymore so so that part is behind me so what was kind of the deciding factor in moving on from ballet theater and exploring these other opportunities you danced with ballet du nord but you also then you also went on and did more modern things and little uh um, well okay so you know i i went i was in getting into my fifth and sixth years with mm -hmm. ballet theater and I was getting little solo parts here and there, but nothing big. And uh, I think I was just fr- I was frustrated. I, I knew that I wanted to dance more, and I and I just tried to I tried to think about the future in ballet theater. What 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 future I would have there? Would I make it to the soloist level? 
did I want to make it to the soloist level? Actually, that was a bigger question. The, the question I was really facing with myself was the difference between what I, what I was comfortable doing and what my ambition was telling me I should be doing. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing I think dancers need to hear more, which is that not everybody needs to be a principal dancer or even needs mm-hmm. to be a soloist. It's okay to be happy in the court of ballet. Right. It's really fun dancing in the court of ballet. There's not a lot of pressure. You get to dance with your friends. It's it's a whole different level of experiencing being on stage, right. I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, so around that time, I just, I, I don't know. You know, I had auditioned for Netherlands Dance Theater while I was in ballet theater because I had fallen in love with Killian's work in Netherlands Dance Theater. I, he offered me a contract in the second company. I didn't take it, stupidly. Uh, because I thought, you know, my ego was like, oh, I'm not going to go to a second company. I'm already in ballet theater. Well, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it happened. It just so happened around that time, you know, I ran into Alfonso Cata in New York at Steps and he was looking for a principal dancer. And I'd been having these feelings about leaving ballet theater because I wanted to dance. I was like, I don't, you know, I don't need the prestige no. anymore of right. being in ballet theater. I don't want to just hang on to that. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to have done something in my career. Mm-hmm. So so he made that offer to me, and it just seemed like an opportunity I couldn't pass up, you mm-hmm. know. And my girlfriend, who was in ballet theater with me, also was offered a contract, so it was kind of the perfect thing for us at right. the time. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was. I don't know. <laughs> maybe I would have done things differently in retrospect. Maybe I should have said to Misha, "Look, you know, I'm going to go off and dance somewhere. Could I come back? Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have wanted to go back." But actually, the the pressure of dancing soloist roles in ballet theater is tremendous. Mm-hmm. It's oh, it's huge. Mm-hmm. It's really huge. You, I mean, and I'm sure people at City Ballet feel the same kind of pressure when you're when you're accustomed to being in the court of ballet. Those soloist roles just seem, you know, they seem monumental. Mm-hmm. You know, and to be out on stage at the Met doing some important soloist work is is really a lot of pressure. Stressful. A lot of stress. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how? How much longer did you go on to dance than after leaving um, ABT and before you started? Because after your career, you attended Brown University. Yeah. Was that after yeah. you were done dancing? Yeah, that was yeah, that was later. That was when I I continued dancing for about six more years after ballet theater, mm-hmm. um, six or eight years actually. I I really stopped dancing when I was thirty four. Okay. Um, so, but I you know. I went to Ballet du Nord for a couple of years. I got to do all sorts of great parts. It was kind of funny because I was going back to the Balanchine kind of style of dancing mm-hmm. that I had gotten and learned a bit about at SAB anyway. So that was kind of interesting. And, um, you know, Willie Berman was coming over all the time and, you know, John Clifford was there and all these people were coming to set all these works. And mm-hmm. I was, you know, getting to do all these great parts. It was wonderful. And it was just the right amount of pressure for me. It wasn't overwhelming. I right. felt like I could handle it. Um, but anyway, to answer your question, uh, so I came back to New York after Ballet du Nord, danced for like, you know, five minutes in the Feld Ballet, <laughs> and then uh, went to Boston, and I worked with two dancers from the Twilight Tharp Company up there, uh, Amy Spencer and Richard Colton, who had a small kind of modern company. And I started dancing, actually taking more modern class along with ballet class, which I absolutely loved. Um Anyway, I think the transfer so, to modern after a professional ballet career seems like the right thing. It seems like really fun. Something it was different. Really liberating. I, I yeah. can't recommend it enough. <laughs> it's so it was so nice to be in bare feet, to not be so focused on all these positions that I had to feel like I needed to make look perfect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just it was easier on my psyche, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was just a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, so at what point did you start to write? When did you become interested oh, in writing? Uh, I think I became interested in writing when I was really very young. Um, I started writing long, or I used to write letters to my grandfather. My grandfather was Swedish, and he loved English and language, and he just was a beautiful writer. He wrote these just very eloquent letters. Mm-hmm. And when I was coming to the point where I thought, okay, I, I, I kind of knew when I was going to, stopped dancing that I didn't want to stay in the ballet world. I really didn't have a great interest in teaching. I'd never done a lot of teaching. I wasn't a good choreographer. Uh, so I thought, you know, it's a big world. I'd like to experience something different. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, 
and I had kept, I was writing all the time. I was in ballet theater, just nothing like serious, but mm-hmm. I was always writing something. And that was really my foot. I thought, okay, um, I'm going to go, I'm going to go get my college degree. Um, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do, but I know that I love writing and I'm going to focus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was where that kind of took more of a, uh, priority in my life. Yeah. How did the decision, um, come about to write your book? It was a suggestion my mother made my, yeah. Uh, I had written a book before that when I finished, when I finished with at Brown, I was 36. I graduated. I had nothing to do in my life. It was the first time I think I remember from the time I'd started ballet where I really didn't have anything I needed to be doing. You know, I had no agenda and I'd spent all those years being, and you guys know this, how disciplined it is. Scheduled. Well, I, I, I wanted to do, like, I wanted to do nothing. I just like, I don't want to have any goals. I don't want to go out and get some job. So I traveled around the world for a year. And when I came back, I thought, okay, Michael, you love writing. Try to write something about that experience. So I wrote a story. I wrote a book about that experience of traveling. I couldn't get it published. And I thought, okay, I'm going to put that aside and work on something else. And my mom said, look, you know, you had an interesting life as a dancer. Why don't you write something about that? So that's really where that idea came from. Well, I think we are at the final portion we of our are? interview where okay. we do our lightning round. <laughs> um, right. And I'm familiar with this. I know. <laughs> oh, by the way, just, you know, a little plug for your podcast. I don't. I only discovered your podcast like six months ago. I don't know where I was. <laughs> and I, bin- I binged listened. I think I've listened to almost every single episode. That's crazy. Oh, my God. Amazing. Yeah. Like, I mean, how, many, yeah. how many do we have now, Rebecca? Over 100, right? You I think it's like 140 or something now. 2016 oh you started? Yep. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we have I bonus would, episodes in there too. So. It was awesome. It was like, I really have enjoyed listening to this and Aww. I'm so happy that you're doing it. I can't believe nobody else thought of it. Or maybe somebody, <laughs> We're lucky that nobody else. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was interesting for me because now that I'm the age that I am and I live in Miami and I, you know, I don't get to New York that often. I come up once a year to cover ballet theater. And so a lot of these younger dancers, even ones that are, you know, on the on a principal level, I don't see them. I don't really know anything about them. Right. So listening to your podcast really gave me a big education Aww. into who some of these people are. Um, so anyway, well, thank, you. That you thank you. We're glad that you are a part of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. That's so sweet. We appreciate that. <laughs> All right, lightning uh, round. <laughs> first lightning first round. question, lightning round. Okay. Um, if you were to come out of retirement tomorrow and could only dance one ballet, what would it be? Uh, and I could dance it as technically. Yes. As, as, <laughs> You're 30 as, years as, old, 25. Uh, I would probably dance. Well, Giselle's my favorite ballet. Yeah. That's Although I have to say, having said that, I think there's another part that I've always been curious to, to dance. And it's Jeune Homme et l'Amour by Roland Petit. Have you guys seen this ballet? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you have to watch it. Uh-huh. It's a beautiful, very cryptic solo about a man who's kind of losing his mind. And uh, there's the figure of death in it. Misha danced it. You should watch Misha do it. Anyway, it's a very interesting piece. And a, a real tour de force for a male dancer. Cool. Okay. Do you have a favorite onstage moment? Um, yeah. I think I do. Um, when I was in Ballet du Nord, I got to do Rubies a lot, uh, which is a fantastic role. Just really fun. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so dancing that ballet was probably my most rewarding experience. And we danced that ballet in some really unusual places. Um, we got to dance in the ta- in the square in Brussels, if you know that where Teatro de la Monnaie is in Bro- this is huge square and they put up this open air stage in the summer and we performed there That's so cool. and some other really iconic we there was a stage in Torino I'll never forget it was enormous and we did rubies there as well Ugh. and here in New actually here in New York uh Valley du Nord came here and I got to dance it here in New York <laughs> which was a real uh. a real thrill honestly uh-huh. okay so, so next one, maybe you already answered in the first mm. question now, but it was, if there was a, uh, a ballet that got away, a role you didn't get to dance mm. when you were performing that you wish you had added to your rep? Uh, I don't know. 
No, I mean, there are many roles. Obviously, I, there are many more roles I didn't get to dance than I did get to dance. <laughs> uh, so, uh, no, I can't think of one, honestly, off the top of my head. Whenever I ask this question, Rebecca, I always think of Julie Kent not <laughs> misinterpreting it. She thought we were asking if there was a ballet that got away, like, oh. like literally, like she did poorly in it. It got away. <laughs> Oh, wait, okay. <laughs> I love that. Oh, we're, not, we're not trying to traumatize you. <laughs> okay, and then the last one is, what subject would you like to write your next book about? Uh, I started writing something right now. Uh, it's actually about cycling, strangely enough. Oh. Uh, I'm, tra- I'm training to go to the French Alps to ride my bike. Um. I'm kind of a cycling fan and I'm, I'm road cycling. Uh, so it's kind of a strange departure, but, um, I like to write nonfiction. I don't feel like I have a, 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 a talent as a fiction writer. Mm -hmm. So I like to write about things that I'm actually doing and the people that I'm meeting. So yeah, it's something I started and I'm going to France in June to actually make, to do this trip with my girlfriend and I'll try to make a story about that. Yeah. Is it hard to train for that um, in Miami where it's so flat? (laughs) (laughs) That is a $10,000 question. Um, Well, you know, you can ride over that Rickenbacker. That's true. (laughs) A lot of times. times. (laughs) Um, I hope not, Rebecca. I I don't really know. I mean, my neighbor did this very same trip that I'm going to do, and he trained just doing the bridge. Um, And he said it was adequate training. Cool. So I'm hopeful that it is enough. But the good thing is I'm not racing. It's not a competition. I'm doing it for my own enjoyment and my own pleasure. Uh, So I'll try to put my competitive nature aside (laughs) and try to, you know, focus on the fun. Yeah. So Love it. Awesome. (laughs) Well, when you publish that next book, we'll get you back on. Okay. For sure. We can always, there's always more dance to talk about. Yeah. Always, Always. we'd love to have you back on. That was so wonderful. We really thank you for being open and honest and taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you, Michael. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.